is NP Voices. I'm your host, Steve McLaughlin. In this episode, we'll talk about major gift fundraising trends with Jay Frost. Jocelyn Harmon with Global Fund for Children gives some advice to new fundraising professionals. And Michael Stein with Donor Digital will explore the ins and outs of donation form testing. That's all next on NP Voices. Jay Frost is a partner with Gerald Panis, Lindsay, and Partners, and I'd like to welcome Jay to the NP Voices show. Thank you very much. Great to be here, Steve. What's your perspective on the fundraising environment out there as we head into the second half of 2013? Wow, it's a big question, and uh, hopefully I'll give it a small answer, which is that I think it's pretty good. But I think we have a real challenge in that not only are a majority of people in this country and arguably many countries still suffering from the after effects of Uh, that economic crash, but it's particularly fallen hard on people who have more modest assets and incomes, that their real estate, which is the bulk of their assets, has not recovered, and it may not for some time. It's a very different picture, as you know, for people who have their wealth tied to securities, where it's now at historic highs in the United States, and in fact, in other countries, it's it's really an extraordinary story, and we don't talk enough about it here. But here's the other part of the puzzle. Many people are advocating that we focus on the very people who are feeling the most pain as a solution to our fundraising woes. And I think it's not only counterintuitive, but I think it's it's a recipe for a short-term disaster, even though for long-term it's a good thing to steward everybody because they're all potential investors in our mission. So I think that the opportunity for fundraising is great. I think the economy has come around in a big way, especially for people with big money, but I would hope that we would learn from the lessons of the past, which is that there's still a pyramidal effect to fundraising, and we've got to focus where the money is, and that's at the top. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the the fundraising pyramid concept, because I've wondered for a while, is that traditional view of a fundraising pyramid broken? My experience has been that for a lot of organizations, they don't really have a pyramid. A lot of them have space needles or Eiffel Towers or other architectural wonders but, but nothing that's a perfect pyramid. What's your perspective on that? I, I just came out of a, a capital campaign feasibility study. We do a lot of those. And it was a school that where we had to interview a lot of people and figure out what the opportunity was. And we described it as being more of an hourglass. And I do see a lot of different shapes, a lot of different architecture. But the underlying elements of the economy that caused us to start describing it as a pyramid, I don't know that they have fundamentally shifted. Because in essence, what we had before was a lot of people that we asked for some measure of support at the base. And then we had perhaps smaller numbers of people with more resources at the middle. Hopefully we were building relationships with all those people. So when we had an opportunity to talk to them, we were doing so at the right time and the right time for them. And then a small group at the top, and that small group at the top are the people we focus on because they have the lion's share of the assets. They can really make these dreams possible. Wealth inequality has not shifted fundamentally in this country, at least since the 1950s and 1960s, arguably. And if anything, it's sharpened. So there's a lot more wealth at the top than there has ever been. And as a result of that, if we focus on the base, we need to do that to be good people, to be open door, to be welcoming everybody to come in and support what we do. But if we focus on the base as a way of reaching our revenue goals, it simply is not mathematically possible to raise a billion dollars on $10 a contribution. To your point, the mathematics don't really work out. Although I've seen a lot of organizations and a lot of talk 
in a lot of the sort of the fundraising circles of people that I talk to of looking at more of the importance of transitional giving. To your point, um, you have that middle stage before people are making significant gifts, but those significant gifts don't come out of thin air either. That a lot of times there are transitional gifts that take place that show you, look, these are individuals we want to focus more on building a longer term relationship with. How does transitional giving fit into all this stuff that's going on? Well, I have to agree with, with that sentiment because I think it's imperative. If what we're really trying to do is not just raise money, but really make things happen. The only way you do that is by having partnerships with people and with institutions, but particularly with people. And that means that we have to be building those relationships all the time. That's that's the fundamental piece. And, it's, and that cannot be replaced by today's version of direct marketing. It really has to be a matter of talking to people, finding out if we have common hopes and dreams, if they, in fact, have resources, meaning intellectual resources, resources of time, as well as resources of capital to invest in what we're doing. Because that can make what we do a lot better. And a lot of that happens in the middle, right? I mean, we might go out tomorrow and say, we want to reach out to everybody in our community or everybody in this field or or everyone with a certain interest area who subscribes to a certain magazine and invite them all to give. And a small percentage of them may. But what we've got to do at that point is then figure out, well, who's really invested in this idea? Let's talk to them about how to make it better. So the middle is is everything. I think it, it has been, or if it hasn't been, it should have been. And it certainly should be going forward. That's that's the only way you can not only make the revenue goal, but you can really make our organizations better at what they do. What are you seeing nonprofits do from an investment perspective, investing in better prospect research or investing in a focus on relationship building? What are you seeing happen and how have you seen that change over the past couple of years as economic conditions have changed, areas of focus have changed? You know, What are you seeing happen there? That's an area where I'm a little less enthusiastic because I think we can do much more, and I think we can do it much better. Uh, the the last two years, it's uh, we can talk about that, but I think to get there, we have to talk about maybe the last 20. It can seem a little boring, but if we look back 20 or even 30 years, we can see so much how the technology has really enabled us to know more about people and to develop more robust relationships with them, to really invite them to participate in what we do actively, not just in name only, but really ask them to participate making what we do far, far better. And I don't know that we have done that very well. And I think that failure has been in two ways that we can easily correct. So one way is with respect to research. Like you mentioned, we have only today about 2,500 members of APRA, which is an association of researchers and advancement, as you know. But there are only 2,500, and about 75% of those folks work in higher education. Now, there are 5,000, I believe, members of CASE. So that doesn't even cover all of case. It certainly doesn't cover the world of hospitals and arts and culture and social services and all the other incredible things that our organizations do in this country and around the world. That small number of researchers. That means that we really know very little about people before we talk to them. We certainly don't know what really is driving them. We need to do so much more in the area of getting to know our donors. One way to think about that is pure product. Is there a research product or some research time we can purchase or maybe a staff member we can hire? to accomplish this. But I think if we just think about it as the return we can get, both financially and in terms of our mission fulfillment, if we just get to know people better, maybe we'll be more willing to make that investment. But it's absolutely essential that we do. And then the next part, I think, has to do with how we're starting to develop relationships with social media. That's that's the very new piece that you and I have so much interest in. And we've only really got our infancy here, right? I mean, seven, eight years for the most mature uh, social media platform. But much of our time there, the discussion has been about engagement. And I love the idea of engaging with people, talking with people. That's everything, like we talked about. But here's the problem. 
they're not defining it in terms of the relationship between engagement and fulfillment or not just popping a question but actually getting married and being committed to the relationship. If social media allows us to not just broadcast out there and send messages and then say thanks and retweeting them. It's, it's really an opportunity to say, you know what, let's invite them to participate in some way actively in, in this thing that we're doing next month, next week, next year. And I don't think we're doing that very well, and I also don't think we're soliciting very well. And in fact, when we do not ask people to give, what we're effectively saying is we don't need their investment. And I've seen that at many organizations over the past 20 years and the past two years. We can't use the social media platform as a way to simply avoid fundraising. So I, I think that we can help ourselves on knowing donors, and actually one of our greatest tools just came to us in the last few years. We can use it to get to know people better, and we can certainly use it to ask people to be involved in what we do far more effectively. And as you said, Jay, a lot of the focus on the social side is about engagement, right. but at some point, engagement has to turn into activation or intimacy or whatever word you want to use to describe right. it, or what are we doing here? <laughs> yeah, in fact, it seems more like these days that we go right for intimacy, and then then we just drop out of it. It's sort of like social media is the one-night stand of fundraising. Yeah, it's speed I, dating. I, I, yeah. I had a, a note, and I get one of these at least once a day, somebody saying, will you support this cause? Um, and it was hashtag worm boy. And so I immediately wrote back, okay, I don't know why you're calling me worm boy. I'm not insulted, but why do you think that I'm going to be responsive to this? I don't know who you are. You're not following me. I'm not following you. You haven't engaged with me, but you want me to give to this thing that's about Worm Boy. And that's actually pretty much what's happening every single day with these platforms. And I don't blame anybody for trying things because if you don't try things and fail, then you never learn anything. So try and fail. It's fine. But here's the thing is that what's so great about this is we can talk to so many people so easily, so efficiently, so inexpensively. And people in places around the world we never could have touched before. Let's really have that conversation. Those conversations are key, and then obviously driving people to more meaningful levels of interaction are really important. Right, right. Jay, we spent a bunch of time talking about what the nonprofits need to do or have been doing, but we haven't really spent time talking about donors. What's your sense? How have donors changed in the past decade? Are they changing? True or false? Donors are changing. Go. (laughs) (laughs) I think at one level, donors aren't changing because... They are people who have some money and are willing to give it. What might be changing is what's driving their giving and their access to information. There's been this big debate we've all heard about whether or not donors are looking for more information before they make a gift. And it seems like some of the preliminary studies, if you want to call them that studies, are demonstrating that, in fact, donors don't look for much information before they make a gift. It's, they uh, characterize it as being emotional. Yeah, a very small percentage of donors actually do any real meaningful research about the charities that they give to. I find that interesting on a couple levels. I mean, one is, wouldn't it be great if they knew more before they made a gift? But then I also wonder if we're asking that question because we're frustrated with where donors are giving. And I, I don't know that it's it's right, especially for people in the fundraising world like I am, to be second-guessing what people want to do with their money. I'm not trying to be a pure libertarian here. I do see more value in some activities than others. But I also am willing to admit that I don't know all the best things. I'm not aware of all the information. And, and even though I study nonprofits every day like you do, I'm not necessarily the best judge of how somebody should invest their money. But I do think that having more access to this information is is helpful to donors. But I think that there's something else that drives donations more, and that is what our activity is. I I think we greatly understate the role that fundraisers and other people who are fundraisers and don't know it play in helping donors to determine where they want to invest their resources. And where we're going to see the biggest change, I think, 
in terms of philanthropy is on the global scene, where not only do they not have a lot of information, not even as much as we do in the United States or Canada or a little bit in the UK and sometimes in Australia, but not only less information, but they also have fewer people soliciting them. And the net result of that, I believe, is largely that people are creating their own institution in order to try and address needs they see because the nonprofits or NGOs or CSOs, whatever they call themselves in that environment, have failed to present an appropriate opportunity that's going to give them the reason to invest and make something really great happen. So if there's a big change in donors, I wonder if it's because of what we haven't done rather than a native change in the donors themselves. And in some cases, it may be just contributing to what we would call these social entrepreneurs who are very passionate about something they're doing. They have the capacity and the affinity to actually do something. And rather than fund an existing charity, they decide, I'm going to start my own. It's that entrepreneurial spirit, but applied to the social sector that it's really interesting to see how that's changed in the past few years. It sure has. And it seemed to me like a few years ago, all the talk in that score was about venture philanthropy. I know there are differences here. But it seems like a lot of the conversation has been about that. Venture philanthropy, then to social entrepreneurship. And here's the thing that I would, I would challenge people to, to explore and to discuss and to debate, which is whether an enterprise that is promoting itself as a social good but is designed as an engine of capital and profits, which has really no accountability because it has no board and is not literally a public good, is a better vehicle for making change than a nonprofit. Now, if we get frustrated with nonprofits, which I do and you do and probably everybody does, maybe it's because the speed at which they do what they do or because maybe they haven't been open enough to certain kinds of change because we become frustrated and we want to see things happen. But the alternative to that is a lot of people who don't answer to anyone. And so it would be wonderful if nonprofits would open their doors to these people and these people would start opening their minds to the existing institutions. If we can start bringing together these good ideas with good capital and working on plans that actually affect change, how much more efficient and effective would that be? Jay, as usual, you've given us uh, a lot to think about, especially on that last topic. Appreciate you being on MP Voices. Oh, thank you very much, Steve. It's been a pleasure. Jocelyn Harmon is Vice President of Development for Global Fund for Children, and she joins the NP Voices show. Welcome, Jocelyn. Hi, Steve. How are you? Really glad you're on the show because I think you offer a really unique perspective. You started out working in the nonprofit sector, then spent a little bit of time working with service providers and vendors who serve the nonprofit sector, and now you're back a little less than a year at Global Fund for Children. So I want to talk a little bit about what should people think about when they're maybe starting out at a nonprofit organization or transitioning into a nonprofit organization to really start to drive change early on in that process. Yeah, so it is interesting, and thank you for having me. I thought it'd be just maybe quickly interesting to tell you what the Global Fund for Children does. Is that okay? Sure, absolutely. Great. So Global Fund for Children is actually a grant maker, and we serve some of the most vulnerable children in the world, so children who have been sold into slavery, girls who lack basic human rights, and children who are just basically born unlucky. And we give small grants to organizations that are serving these children, and then we help those organizations to grow so they can be 
sustainable resources in their communities and serve even more children. And since uh, our founding, uh, 19 years ago, next year is our 20th anniversary, we have served over 8 million children in 78 countries in the developing world. We've done that through about 500 partners. That's yeah, fantastic. It's a great, great place to work. So you're right. I'm back running uh, a fundraising shop, and it has been a transition. Although I have to say that, as many fundraisers I think would agree, fundraising is very similar to sales. It's just that you're selling a different kind of service or product, if you will. And so a lot of the skills, if you are doing sales or marketing, of course, are transferable. And that said, there are some differences. <laughs> so, as you know, working for Voxod, and I also have obviously been a vendor to nonprofits, you know, most recently at Network for Good, it's interesting because the compensation structure is different because obviously as a fundraiser you aren't compensated in the same way in terms of, you know, commissions and things like that. And that's kind of interesting because it, it shapes the work that you do or don't do maybe. And then the other piece that I think is really different for a nonprofit, and I know you feel this way too, Steve, is that we do operate in a very constrained context because we have to be extremely transparent about our fundraising and in particular our overhead or operational expenses, administrative expenses, and that's tough. So we're serving, you know, in difficult contexts, but we're also having to really keep our costs and overhead low. And so I would say that one thing that you have to do in a nonprofit is you have to be an extremely creative person and you have to be able to stretch every dollar in order to succeed. What advice would you give someone who is maybe moving to a new organization or starting sort of their first real fundraising career in the nonprofit sector in those first 60 to 90 days? You know, what are some things that are really key to get moving, get focused on in that initial period of time? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think there's three things that I try to do and they're important to do really in any job, but definitely in a nonprofit. And the first thing is to really understand the business and in particular what you're selling or what you're fundraising for. So what makes your mission unique? You know, what is the value you're bringing to your donors? It's really important. You know, some people call it the case for support. It's really important to deeply understand that. And if you can, to see it in action. So go and talk to the people your organization serves, maybe travel, in, you know, in our case, to the field so that you really get a sense of the impact of the work so that you can communicate effectively. So that's the first thing is sort of learn the mission. The second thing is fundraising is all about relationships. And so it's really important to meet donors <laughs> as soon as you can, uh, especially if you run a major gift shop, which is something that we do here at GFC. And so you want to get out and meet the board members, and you want to meet your donors. And again, start really, you know, I guess, assessing the marketplace for your, for your product or for your mission and understand what is it that really makes you unique and what makes people want to give to your organization. And then the third thing that I think is really important to do is to get into the data. So I know you'll know that, Steve. One of the things that I did here, and I've done it previous jobs, is actually hire someone to come and analyze the file because you really want to get a handle on how many donors do you have, you know, what do your retention rates look like, 
what are you going to have to plan for in terms of acquisition in order to grow the organization and serve more people? And so really getting a handle on your file and your donor base is critically important, and it's, it's good to do that uh, as soon as possible, especially as a senior person, so you can start to inform projections um, for future years. I like how you mentioned the use of data to make sort of more informed decisions. Like you said, looking at the would. file and, and getting a sense for, okay, these are, you know, these are my total number of supporters, but who are major gift donors? Who are transitional donors? Who've given to the annual fund? Who has received funding through grants? Who's lapsed? Who hasn't, right? Sort of just making heads or tails of, of what's in the file before you, exactly. you start making decisions about things. That's exactly right, and it's incredibly instructive. If you can do that before you take a job at a nonprofit, even better, but you know, most folks wouldn't share and probably shouldn't share that type of data. But the other piece, again, if you're doing major gifts, you want to look at carefully is what is the board composition? Are there rules around give or get? And what kind of leverage do your board members have? Can they introduce you to new people? Can they help you hold events? Can they help you with in-kind services? All that good stuff. The board of a nonprofit can be very instrumental and, like you said, helping to drive growth, whether that's fundraising program, making connections for funders, those types of things. And like you said, a lot of times that comes down to what's the composition of our board and do we have the right individuals who have a similar mindset who, who can take us to where we want to go next and, and having, having an active board as well involved in what's happening in the organization. That's exactly right. A lot of times people talk about the importance of getting an early win, so demonstrating in a short period of time that change is possible or we can achieve a goal, especially if you're coming into a situation that isn't always rosy or where you're just trying to you know, reach new heights in terms of what the organization is achieving. What are some things you found in terms of getting an early win, getting people on board uh, as being really critical in a nonprofit organization? I think the way you scope projects and getting an early win are really, really important, both to keep people motivated, including yourself, and to show your impact, and to even, of course, get your donors motivated and excited about investing with you. One of the things I was really lucky to be a part of when I came to GFC was the Financial Times Seasonal Appeal. So every year, the Financial Times picks one nonprofit, and they actually have a dedicated journalist who scours the globe. The nonprofit has to have an international focus and impact. And they wrote over 29 stories about GFC in print and online about our grantee partners in Ghana, Senegal, Brazil, Haiti, and London. And we were able to raise a matching gift through our board family and our leadership council family members in order to leverage that into $5 million in 10 weeks. So it's sort of a crazy way to start a job. Yeah, that's, but, but that's actually, great results. Yeah, it was actually very exciting. And yeah, it was great. And so we held seven events in Hong Kong, London, New York, and Chicago over 10 weeks and did online and offline campaigning. And we raised the biggest amount of money we've ever raised online for the organization. And it taught us a lot about the limits of our capacity <laughs> and showed us where we also could shine. And, of course, it was very, very exciting uh, for the whole staff. So that was that was great. I mean, I think that campaign is an outlier. Uh, not everyone can be the beneficiary of such a, a great award. But I think figuring out how to quickly make impact, whether it's getting a matching gift, you know, at year end that you can leverage, 
Like you said, there's a definite psychic benefit to the org and staff by seeing, hey, wow, we can achieve something. Maybe it's something on the scale of like you talked about with the Financial Times. But even if it's in a local organization of we've gotten our board to match giving up to a certain level, and we were never able to accomplish that before. I mean, a win is a win is a win, right? Right. Now, the last thing I'd want to ask you about, obviously, you deal on a day-to-day basis with the the art and science of fundraising and dealing with donors. What's your perspective over the past couple of months? Are you seeing some different trends or behavior from donors that maybe you haven't seen in the past? I mean, when you when you look out the window, what what do you see on the the fundraising forecast these days? Great question. One of the things that I think is a positive and also a challenging trend, as most trends are, is that major donors and also institutional funders are becoming quite strategic in their philanthropy. By that, I mean they are going off-site. They're really thinking through kind of the areas and issues and, of course, the geographies where they want to make impact and are carefully crafting strategies. And that's great because I think that many philanthropists are really taking philanthropy very quite seriously and want to be very engaged in helping to change the world and are not interested in simply writing checks that go into a black box somewhere. However, I think the challenge is that, and all fundraisers, I think, are seeing this, is that funding is becoming more restricted. I think that nonprofits are becoming sort of project implementers in many ways, for their major donors and for the institutions um, who invest with them. And sometimes that's great and sometimes that's difficult because it actually doesn't allow the nonprofit to have enough flexibility in how it delivers its services and does its work. And so any like any good partnership, if you were in the for-profit or the nonprofit side, I think nonprofits have to be really careful about vetting all partnership opportunities and all the RFPs that come across their desks and just make sure that the funding and the investment uh, they're going after really is going to be a good fit. And so that's, that's what I'm seeing. So more of a balanced portfolio, if you will, because sometimes you will have certain restricted gifts that you take on that require you to go down a particular path. But you know, you also need to fund other maybe existing or current programs where there's a need. It's an established program, and you're also looking for people to fund that as well. Well, that's exactly right. But I think I would even go further to say that most nonprofits are have a theory of change and hopefully have expertise on the board and staff level about how to make impact in the world. And it's really important for our voices to be at that table and for our voices to not be eclipsed by money. That's a really good point to make. Jocelyn, appreciate you being on the program, and we'll check back with you maybe a year down the road and see where things are then. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Up next on MP Voices, we're going to explore the wonderful world of testing to improve your online fundraising results. And to do that, I'd like to welcome to the show Michael Stein with Donor Digital. Welcome to the show, Michael. Hi, Steve. Pleased to be here. So I'd like to start with two really simple questions. One, why is it so important to do regular testing? And why don't nonprofits do more of it? I mean, I think that it's important to do testing to keep the organization sort of evolving in the way that its constituents and donors are interacting with them. So it's really, I think, uh, at the heart and soul of it, a learning process and an engagement process between the organization and the donor. I know that there's a more technical answer to that question, but I actually prefer the one that I gave. So 
I think it's really helpful for orgs to just be constantly learning. And I think the testing process does that. It really, I think, challenges the organization to constantly rethink how they're messaging, how they're presenting the value proposition of the organization, how they're presenting their online web, email, social media assets to their supporters. And I, you know, I think that's a little bit why more nonprofits don't do it, because that can actually be at times either a challenging process or a lengthy one. But I really do think it's just super important to do that testing. And then, of course, the more straightforward answer to your question is, of course, it's important to test because it's the means by which you can organizations can increase the amount of money that they're raising from either their website, their donation form, or through their interaction with their constituents through things like email appeal campaigns or any type of online campaign that they're conducting. I know that sometimes nonprofits feel as though testing can get complicated. There's very sophisticated multivariate testing, and maybe they perceive it as not being simple and straightforward. Could you address testing 101, testing for beginners, if you haven't done a lot of online donation form or email testing, where's a good place to start? really kind of at the central point where the donor experience is actualized, which is obviously on the donation form. And I think that organizations, I think, you know, look at these donation forms or they look at their platforms. And of course, oftentimes, you know, the Blackboard tools or other products like Convio and others, you know, come into play there. And, you know, there are obviously plenty of technical issues to sort of think about. But I think at the end of the day, it's about looking at the donation form and saying, What's absolutely the best way to make some simple improvements here that are going to have an impact on the bottom line? And I think what we've noticed in work that we've done, you know, literally with dozens of clients doing donation page optimization, that really just some very simple things can make a really big impact, such as, you know, changing just some of the call to action on the page with like the headlines. Sometimes it can be as simple as changing the photography that's used on the page. And, you know, those two things alone, frankly, are not at all technological issues. They are marketing and messaging issues. And so I always encourage organizations to go into the process with some enthusiasm that, you know, they're going to really be looking at the messaging and thinking about their engagement process with the donor. And oftentimes, believe it or not, it's it's those simple things on the page that can be the most impactful to the bottom line. I would say there's there's obviously a ton of other more complex tests that can be performed on pages that deal with everything from you know the dollar gift amounts that are presented, um, the order in which they're presented, the way in which credit card options are are shown on the page, whether things like trust seals are, are there as well. So there's, there's certainly a whole list of those sorts of things that are certainly more technical, and obviously those have some impacts on back-end processing that's going on. And I don't mean to, to say that those aren't important ones, because they, they are certainly very important, but I just wanted to start from the beginning of, of, of just encouraging organizations to think of it more as a, more of a messaging question, but also to think you know holistically about just the whole donation experience. An organization has this donation page, a donor or a prospective donor comes to the page, I think most of all, we just want we just want to encourage organizations to sort of, you know, how do we make this experience for the donor less of an e-commerce experience and more of an experience in just the joy of giving a gift to the organization, feeling excited about what it's going to go towards. So having things on the donation page and testing things on the donation page, like what's the best photograph on the page that's going 
going to increase the conversion rate or what's the best headline and copy and what's the best way to present the copy that will also increase the conversion rate on the page. So I think that's a way to think about testing, which hopefully takes it less from the realm of super complicated analytics and, you know, an Excel spreadsheeting stuff to something much more akin to how do we get people just really stoked about the experience of getting to this page, seeing the material here, the photos, the text, and then quickly realizing that the process of entering the credit card is really just going to be fairly quick. Michael, I like how you said that the real primary focus should be on the donor experience as opposed to maybe what internal stakeholders feel as though should be on the form or to a certain extent, all the tribal knowledge that's out there where people get into esoteric arguments over should the ask amount be descending or ascending or vertical or horizontal as opposed to you should really just start with, if I'm a donor and I'm going to that form to give, what's that experience like? Is it simple? Is it straightforward? Is there anything about it that might be confusing? How quickly can you complete the task? What happens when you complete the task? All those types of things are about the experience, not necessarily the nuts and bolts or the back office operations of the organization. Yeah, well said. In fact, I often encourage organizations that are venturing into a testing project to spend, you know, a couple of hours, you know, talking to donors live or right in front of them or on the phone about what they like or dislike about the page. So there's certainly, there's testing, which is more of a scientific process and an analytic process, but then there's also the real world of talking to donors and saying, hey, you know, did that video, did you like having that video there? And, you know, maybe their response was, oh, I never thought to play the video, but I see that it's there. Um, but I really wanted to fill out the form as quickly as possible, um, but I really appreciated the content there. So, that, yeah, there's, there's, there's definitely plenty of, um, of issues there, and I liked your point about stakeholders. I think most of the time when we, when we arrive at, when we start a project with a client and we arrive at these donation pages, oftentimes, you know, a lot of those elements on the page, you know, have been brought there either by multiple stakeholder needs, you know, or, frankly, by some of the, the back-end technologies and tools, not just the actual online platform, but then the the other platforms that exist inside the organization. A classic example is, you know, you've got one page to collect a one-time gift and a completely separate donation page to to collect monthly sustainer gifts because they have different back-end systems to collect them. And so things like that can be really kind of maddening, really, to donors. They don't they don't understand why all this clicking has to happen. They just really want to make a donation, and um, and they want it to be fun. And so at the end of the day, you know, testing is really about tackling that what we call the abandonment rate. In other words, you know, you've got so much traffic coming to the page, and how many of those individuals can we convert to the donor? So testing, you know, is really a very simple process when you boil it down to the donor experience. But then again, it also involves, you know, using analytics tools. You know, Google has a few of them, uh, Google Analytics content experiments. There's also a couple of others like Visual Web- Website Optimizer and Optimizely that are out there. And, you know, we use a couple of those in different scenarios. And it's, it's understandable, I would say, that organizations would find them difficult to use if there's definitely a learning curve to understanding how to how to construct a testing sort of paradigm or testing plan. And then there's also some complexity in installing some of the code on the website. So it's certainly not for the completely faint of heart. I, I think it definitely does take some, you know, some staff time and some focus from management 
to make sure that there's going to be good learning outcomes from the process. But what's been remarkable, and I've been doing this for a couple of decades, is also seeing how easier it has, in fact, become to use these tools. I've been really impressed both with Visual Website Optimizer and also Optimizely, which are two cloud-based platforms. I mean, their tools are just dead easy to use. And I think with just a minimal amount of learning curve, I think pretty much any organization you know, can, can make the investment in learning how to use them and, and deploying them. And having testing programs, frankly, that last all year round. I mean, that's another point that I was going to make earlier, which is that, you know, testing isn't, hey, let's test in August. It's more like, let's test monthly, but let's figure out what's the right order that we want to attack the question. So if it's something like a donation page, we might tackle issues around maybe messaging and content first to see if that could have an impact, because those often have the biggest impact on donation page conversion. But then there may also be other more complex issues like, you know, whether you want to just, you know, display the security seal for the, you know, the security code for the credit card or whether you want to remove some of the field from the address information. And those can be a little bit more complicated to sort through. And also they might have impacts on some of those stakeholder issues that we talked about before. I think you're you're dead on wanting to point out the need for continuous improvement, if you will, that it's not just testing isn't a one-time thing. Testing is something you can keep doing over a period of time. And the good news is, as you mentioned, there are a lot of great tools that, from a technical standpoint, have made it easier to test. One thing I found is really effective to test the qualitative aspects of things as well is call the last 10 online donors and ask them questions about the experience. And you will learn so much from those 10 individuals about the qualitative side, you already have the data. Now you want to know what people think. So that's another thing that I found can be effective organizations. I want to pivot a little bit now and talk about mobile because now with mobile in the mix, mobile-friendly forms, mobile-friendly email, this is causing sort of some upheaval in the sector, right? We, we've got to maybe look at things that we haven't looked at in the past or start thinking about different devices that impact what is that experience for a donor. How are you seeing orgs thinking about the use of mobile, doing more mobile testing being effective? Yeah, mobile testing or mobile optimization is definitely definitely a challenge point for a lot of organizations. I think at the, at the core of the issue is how much of the donor experience or the donor process is, is implicated in the mobile experience. What we're not seeing is people using their mobile phones, their small mobile phones, to actually make donations on donation pages. However, we do see a lot of mobile donations coming through tablets. So there's some, there's also a, a range of different responses and issues that we're seeing. That said, there is a big push to make sure that donation pages are, in fact, mobile optimized so that they can at least be seen on the screen. But there's a little bit of an understanding that when donors get an email that may have an appeal or an urgent appeal or something like that, they may be clicking through on links when they're, you know, standing around, sitting at the bus stop or whatever but then they may be waiting a little bit to make donations when they're back at their more familiar laptops and desktops or, or tablets and so on. So really what that means is that donors are themselves becoming more sophisticated in how they are you know, consuming this content, but making very intelligent and appropriate decisions by themselves about when, when they want to kind of complete the donor experience. But I think that, you know, that process, that delay process between you get the appeal at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, but you're going to make the gift later at night, means that we do have to consider 
consider the mobile optimization process as important, but then we also have to just make sure that all the other pieces are in place. It's never been more important, for example, to send multiple emails as part of an appeal and to do it at different times of the day and to not neglect the weekend because donors are making those kinds of intelligent choices about, gee, I heard about this, you know, this appeal on a Thursday, but I'm way too busy today to make the donation. I hope I get a reminder on the weekend, which is when I like to make a donation. So um, I think it's also shifted that this sort of this time and space shift that happens with mobile devices, you know, it actualizes in, in, in the real world of when, when email appeals should go out from organizations and also when reminders should go out. But also, you know, you know, at the end of the day, though, mobile optimization of websites, donation forms, and email appeals is certainly critical. But I do think that organizations should, take, should spend more time looking at when gifts are being made by donors and trying to get a sense of that. There's, I think, this, this long sort of health theory, like, you know, only send emails, you know, Tuesday through Thursday, because that's when people like to consume their email. That is changing just so fast and so constantly uh, that I just think it's important to, you know, to, to dig into the data and also to, you know, think outside that sort of proverbial box of when's the right time to message people and, you know, what, what's the right kind of readiness that, that we need to have to make sure that a donor who has a prospective donor who's just read the appeal on their phone is going to get a reminder a couple days later when they're, you know, sitting at their desk or everything like that. Now, I know all those things are complicated because it requires, you know, a good grasp of analytics and everything else. But I think it's, you know, part of the, just like testing is a continual learning process, I think that this sort of, you know, trying to get a handle on some of the mobile analytics is a constant learning process. And at the end of the day, it's about, you know, understanding the donor and listening to her, to him, and getting a sense for, like, what their, what their patterns are, how they like to give, how they want to give how often they like to get email reminders. Um, and really that's the continual conversation that just cannot happen enough and should happen more frequently. Because that's really where the real learning happens. It's not just in the testing lab, it's also gonna happen through that kind of dialogue between the organization and the donors themselves. Michael, that's some great advice about how nonprofits can use uh, online testing to improve the results. Appreciate you being on MP Voices. Thanks very much, Steve, always my pleasure. That's it for Episode 8 of NP Voices. I'd like to thank our guests, Jay Frost, Jocelyn Harmon, and Michael Stein. This episode is brought to you by the letter Q. Thanks for listening.